0: welcome back to that's orgasmic you are joined by your host emily duncan and today we're talking all about endometriosis ibs and how we can manage these with our diets. So please enjoy today's episode. Today I'm joined with Christy Lee Austin-Haw who is an accredited practicing dietitian with dual specialization in women's health and IBS nutrition. Christy is from Perth, Australia and is the director of her own online business, Christy Lee Nutrition. Christy uses her expertise to support people with both endometriosis and IBS. So thank you for coming onto the show. How are you today?
1: i'm really well thank you so much for having me on
0: no worries thank you for coming on now i really want to talk about endometriosis today as it's a super important topic are you just able to explain for anyone who might not know what endometriosis is Mm -hmm,
1: absolutely so Simply put, and I'll go on to explain because I feel like people go, what when I say this, but like tissue that belongs inside your uterus is found growing in other parts of the body. So the reason it's called endometriosis is because that tissue is like the endometrial lining of our uterus. And then people go, what is an endometrial lining? It's literally just the lining of our uterus that Becomes our menstrual flow or our menstrual period every month. So it's where we uh, the endometrial lining contains blood and nutrients it's where a potential embryo might implant if there was a you know a pregnancy to occur and that would help to um you know grow and um, oh create the right environment for an embryo right but most of us you know we don't get pregnant every single month we have our period every single month so the endometrial lining leaves the body out the vagina. So in endometriosis, what I want you to imagine is that the tissue that's normally leaving our body is found in other parts of our body. So it's, it's found potentially on the bowel, it's found in the pelvis, it's found on the ovaries or the fallopian tubes. It has even been seen going as far as like the lung and the eye as well, which is very, very far away from mm. the uterus. And we call it endometrial-like tissue because we don't actually know if, if it is actually the same as the endometrium, but it shares a lot of common characteristics. It makes its own estrogen um, and generally just causes a lot of scarring and inflammation um, and pain is probably one of the biggest features that we see with endo.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, especially seeing it can travel that far. Mm. I think a lot of people would probably see it as something that just happens in like our uterus and that like region and not much further than that. Are there any like common signs and symptoms that are associated with it?
1: Definitely. So pain is the most common one that we would see, and that can be pain around the period itself, so period pain, but it tends to be uh, quite debilitating pain. I mean, there's a lot of variation in endo, so there's no really like one type of person is obviously someone who has endo because some people don't experience pain at all, but it's just very, very common. So pain can be around the back, it can be down the leg, uh, all around that pelvic area. And then we also know that Gut pain is something that a lot of people experience as well. And that coincides with a lot of other gut symptoms that tend to appear. Things like bloating, which is fondly known as endo belly, mm. uh, diarrhea, constipation, sometimes both. It may alternate between the two. Uh, Distention of the, of the belly. Um, things like even fatigue um, is a really common one. Um, pain, if you're doing a number two or a number one uh and struggling to fall pregnant is one of the other really key ones so we know about somewhere between 30 to 50 percent of people with endo may struggle to fall pregnant Uh, but of course you don't really know that symptom until you do get started trying
0: yeah and I suppose it makes it hard too when there is such broad symptoms everyone can be so different trying to work out what's what and you know when to go see the doctor and when we should be like you know taking that those next steps and what is abnormal for us Mm
1: -hmm. so
0: how can our diet impact impact endo
1: Mm, it's a really really good question and I think if you would talk to most doctors most doctors would say what diet and endometriosis there's there's no links there there's nothing that diet can do and I actually even heard someone say one time that their doctor said uh, that people all around the world have different diets yet we have endometriosis all over the world. So there's no there's no diet that's um, curing or causing endo. And I think that's, definite, that's where you want to actually focus. Diet doesn't cause endometriosis that we know of. We don't actually know what causes endo. I don't believe diet probably does. Um, and diet also doesn't cure endo. Again, we actually don't have a cure for endo. So nothing cures endo that we know of just yet. So most management strategies diet being one of them, is actually on managing symptoms. So those key symptoms of period pain and gut pain, uh, bloating or endo belly, diarrhea and constipation, fatigue and mental health, they're probably the key symptoms that diet assists with. Um, And the reason for that is because there are three characteristic hallmark features of endo, one of them being inflammation. So when the the endometrial tissue is growing and moving around the body and attaching to the organs where we don't want it to be, it drives inflammation. Then we have a component of endo that is uh hormone imbalances. So we see that there tends to be excess amounts of estrogen in the body or progesterone resistance. Um, and then the final one is immune dysfunction and gut dysfunction, which kind of comes like a little uh, combo team because 70 to 80% of our immune cells are in the gut. And if the gut's not happy, the immune system's not happy. And if the immune system's not happy, the gut's not happy. So diet plays a role in each of these three hallmark features, inflammation, hormone imbalances, the gut and immune dysfunction. And so that's where my whole framework of managing endometriosis is kind of coming from. So I pull out the best evidence of nutrition strategies for reducing inflammation, for hormone balancing, and then how do we actually improve the way that the gut and the immune system are functioning and sort of bring all of those three different strategies together and create like what I call um, like a framework or a roadmap that is unique for managing endometriosis. So there's no one endo diet. That's a really big myth. Uh, I guess people might call it like the way they eat to manage the endometriosis is their endo diet. And that's totally fine. Um, But I think a lot of people do go online looking for endo diet and they expect um, something that's going to just, you know, be the answer for for everybody. And it's really not quite like that, that yes, we have uh, things that work for most people. But everybody is different, and so there's everyone's journey through figuring out what nutrition best supports their symptoms is going to be slightly different. And that's definitely where having a dietitian or someone who's a professional in understanding endometriosis and IBS, which we'll be talking about as well, I'm sure, today, um, actually helps to tailor and personalise the information to work for that person.
0: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I know it's something that I would never even thought of is looking at my diet and how that would interact with something like endometriosis like wouldn't it and like all the gynecologists I've seen and doctors not even mention like it's not something I would ever have thought of at all and it makes sense especially when you're talking about like inflammation and those type of things it makes so so much sense that our diet can interact with that so it's crazy mm-hmm. when we don't know these things. That's why it's so important to like have these conversations. So what's the process like when you go and see a dietitian for this? Like, Is it like process of like elimination or like with foods?
1: There's so many different strategies and different practitioners or different dietitians will work differently. And we all kind of, you know, like endometriosis in itself is quite niche or specialised but you can kind of go deeper into that and you can go niche again. And so you have uh, some dietitians who may have more of a fertility focus, so they're seeing endo clients who are looking at optimising their fertility. Um, and then you've got someone like me who focuses much more on irritable bowel syndrome and managing the gut symptoms that come alongside the endo. And there's um, you know there's other practitioners out there who go into more functional medicine and look really deep into supplements. Um, so I'll talk from my experience. So typically when someone sees me, we always want to start off with setting up the foundations, right? I talk about nutrition, like when you're trying to build a house or when you're trying to make any kind of lifestyle change, you want to think about how someone might build a house. You don't build the roof before you build the foundations because, you know, it would just, it wouldn't work, (laughs) You also wouldn't build the walls before you build the foundation because mm-hmm. the walls will probably, you know, blow over it in a storm. <laughs> um, so the foundation work is probably the most fundamental, important thing you'll ever do. And, you know, a lot of people are expecting something really difficult and like uh, some secret like food, you know, like I feel like um. What do you call them? Like superfoods were such yeah. a thing there for a
0: while. Yeah, they were. Yeah. <laughs> I got into them as well. <laughs> totally. You know, even like celery
1: juice and like, oh, there's so many fads around people just think this one thing is going to fix everything. Actually, we really need to dial back right down to the foundation. That is seriously just looking at some basics around. Do you drink enough water? Are you, are you hydrated? Do you eat regularly through the day or do you skip meals? Do you eat balanced portions of foods or, you know, are some meals ginormous and other meals too small? Um, Are you having way too much caffeine and coffee? Uh, What about even like, do you um, have really high fat meals? We know that that really affects a lot of people with gut symptoms and, and endo as well, exercise, sleep quality, stress management. And, you know, that kind of even like goes a bit beyond diet right there, but I guess any, any practitioner who practices holistically sh- should recognize that nutrition is important, but it's also important to focus on stress and sleep and exercise because they all work together in a little uh, like a little team. Um, so foundations is something that we spend time on. And then it's about looking into specifically what are fo- what foods may be triggering someone's symptoms and it's something that I see a lot, particularly in the group that struggle with the IBS type symptoms or irritable bowel symptoms that we need. You know, a lot of people come in on quite restrictive or unusual diets already. They've Before they've come to see me, they may have already tried to DIY. They've been online to figure out, should I cut out gluten? Should I cut out dairy? Should I cut out... And I actually, I call it like the cutout theory. Like it's it's this approach where it's just like, let's just remove everything that potentially might be a trigger. And then you end up on a very restricted and like, you know, potentially not nutritionally balanced diet. So this next process that I take people through and I've got, I use a lot of FODMAP knowledge to help people with eliminating foods that might trigger them and then reintroducing one by one different foods to then get clarity on, is that your trigger, or is it someone else's trigger? Because you know, often we see, oh, my friend, you know, can't eat this and my friend can't eat that. But what about you? Can you eat those foods? Because if you can, we might as well be eating them because it creates so much more dietary diversity, less restriction when you go out socializing with all of your friends. And that in turn helps your mental health. And so, you know, we need to make sure that we don't lose ourselves in the journey of diving down the diet rabbit hole. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, definitely i've i've been like done that where you do restrict it like you restrict it like yep i'll stop this tried the i don't think the fodmap lasted long i reckon i tried about a week and i was like no (laughs) it's just too much (laughs) also did it with no guidance that did not help at all and then as soon as you like go out or your friends come over and they want to eat all these things and you're like it does like impact your mental health it's like such a struggle (laughs) a
1: hundred percent i was gonna add to that as well that like with I get that a lot. A lot of people may have even come across better or more evidenced strategies, which would be FODMAP. Um, but going at it alone, always like it, it never ends well. It's usually like a you might find the Monash app and you sort of start playing around with things, but quickly you get very confused by portions, you get confused by how you're going to reintroduce things, and then you just go, this is crap. <laughs> like, I don't want to yeah. do this. And you almost feel quite scarred by the experience like I hate FODMAP you know I never want to do FODMAP ever again but I think that yeah the difference is is that it's not supposed to be a long-term diet and you definitely want to do it with that supervision so that you can get in get it done well get off it and have that clarity and then be able to move forward in your life and have much better quality of life
0: yeah definitely are there any foods that you have found commonly interact quite poorly with endometriosis
1: It's a, yeah, really good question Um, because so many people will do that sort of search online. They'll go and have a look. And the reason that they've started doing that look is because, you know, IBS is three times more common in people with endo. So gut dysfunction is, is very impacting. Like, you know, if you're, if you're trying to go out for the day and you run to the toilet, and then you're hiding in there or, you know, you can't go anywhere that you don't know where all the public toilets are. It's, it's really, it's very, very impacting. So that's that look online will tell you things like cut out gluten, cut out dairy, cut out. I've seen the most wild lists like corn and eggs and soy, red meat. Um, honestly, there's like almost nothing left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> So so a lot of people would believe that these are the common foods that impact endo and, you know, everyone universally needs to avoid them. Um, it's definitely not true. I do see some common things between people and then a lot of variations. So some of the common things using structured elimination and then challenging, we find that well, if actually if we, if we even go back a little bit further into the foundation stuff that we talked about, Most people with endo universally do struggle with large amounts of caffeine, Mm -hmm. alcohol, chili, spicy foods, again, those high-fat meals. And that doesn't necessarily mean good fats, bad fats. I'm just saying even if you eat a ginormous smashed avo for breakfast, you might feel uncomfortable because it's got so much fat. (laughs) Um, Then when we look at actually doing like, sort of more FODMAP work, things that are often really common is fructans. So fructans are a carbohydrate that is found in wheat, garlic, onion, in uh, nuts and seeds. It's found in quite a variety of different foods. And often people will mistaken this for gluten intolerance because fructans are found in wheat. And when you cut out bread from your diet, you go, oh, I feel better that doesn't automatically mean you have a gluten intolerance, but it's often an assumption that people make because, you know, most people don't understand what makes up food. You know, Mm -hmm. that bread is not just made of gluten. It also has, you know, it's got fats, it's got carbohydrates, there's fibers in there. There's so many other components of food. So fructan is one key group that props up a lot, but not for everybody. And another key group is lactose. So again, now lactose comes in all of your dairy foods, except hard cheese. Hard cheese has almost no lactose, so you don't need to worry about it.
0: Really, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm.
1: Anyone that's like potentially has a lactose intolerance does not have to avoid hard cheeses, which is amazing. There you go. Yeah. And so uh, a lot of people confuse that for a dairy allergy or dairy intolerance. And again, knowing the composition of what is actually upsetting you, is it? the lactose or is it proteins in dairy that upset you? Because that is a very different management strategy that like, like, as we've just discovered, if you can have cheese, you know, you can have, you can have your cheese plates when you go out with the girls with, Mm -hmm. for wines, you can have cheese on your pizza. You can like cheese is just one of the best foods in the world. (laughs) It is. (laughs) And not to think of like, when you cut out dairy completely you really need to then make sure that what you replace dairy with contains calcium contains b12 contains protein um and that's a that's a big nutrient deficiency i see in a lot of people that try to diy their endo diets and cut out whole food groups um and just in, back to the bread likewise with bread when you discover you have a fructan intolerance that actually means that you can, have, you can have bread, but you just can't have large portions of it, or you could switch to something called spelt sourdough. A spelt sourdough is actually a wheat-based bread, but it contains so little fructan that it won't affect you, so you can have your normal kind of like two slices of that and wouldn't feel a thing. And that in itself opens up another whole world of more dietary variety. If there's crumbing on something when you go out to a restaurant or, uh, you know, there's some wheat used in a product in like I don't know I can't think of a good example maybe a breakfast cereal for example or a wrap Um, the the portion of it might not be enough to trigger someone with a fructan intolerance but if you had a gluten intolerance that's totally different like you can't even have this the smallest amount of gluten foods before they'll cause you issues so I'm just really I'm really really passionate about people learning about this because the risk of nutrient deficiencies is so high when you diy and on top of that when you have endo your body needs so much more love and nutrition than the average person because it's constantly on a daily i don't want to say fighting but it's it's trying to manage the inflammation that's going on from the tissue running around in the body and so we actually need to fuel someone with endo with more nutrition more vitamins and minerals more fiber more love so that we can try and combat some of those other things and, and often on the journey to trying to fix up the bloating and fix up the diarrhea and the constipation we end up going down a bit of a dangerous path of actually uh choosing diets that don't support us very well and we end up with those nutrient deficiencies um, that make our symptoms worse in the long run which I think a lot of people don't realize because it's a slow game you know you you change your diet and it doesn't always you don't see nutrient deficiencies for a few years and then you go oh my god now I feel terrible and it takes quite a bit of time to replenish that
0: so if we have both IBS and endometriosis how could we work out what's causing what, can we, or do we just kind of have to look at it as kind of just approach, like looking at the symptoms?
1: Yeah, a lot of people ask me a very similar question. They'll say, so how do I know if I have endo or if I have IBS? And I think that as humans, we really like to try and like categorize things we like yeah we like black and white concepts like is it yes or no Mm -hmm. in or out on or off (laughs) and so much of life is actually not like that there's a lot of gray area so what i want to um what i want to highlight about endo and ibs is that many people are diagnosed with ibs well before endo is found and that's just a case of uh ibs is actually uh it's not actually what we we don't actually understand what causes ibs either this is what makes ibs and endo so difficult we don't know what caused both of them we don't know how, how to actually stop or cure either of them uh but when you're going through and you're experiencing these symptoms you'll see your doctor and they will say okay let's do a colonoscopy. Let's do a gastroscopy. Let's maybe they may x-ray your stomach. That's less common. Let's um, do a couple of blood tests. And when all of that comes back negative, they go, okay, you must have IBS. And that's because IBS is a diagnosis based on exclusion. So they're literally doing all of these tests to figure out, do you have something worse? Do you have Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, diverticular disease? Do you have um celiac disease or cancer and when they can't find any of those things they fall back onto ibs like okay well you have all the, these this collection of symptoms characteristic of ibs so we're just like that, you know we're just you're just someone who we don't know why you have these symptoms we can't really figure it out one of the the problems here is that endometriosis should be part of those exclusion criterias But it's often not because it's so expensive and and often not available to or maybe the right surgeon is not in your town to actually identify endometriosis. So if it was more accessible for people to go and have a laparoscopy surgery or if there was better diagnostic techniques, then I often wonder to myself, would we find endometriosis? And then we would go, oh, that's why you have IBS symptoms because your endo is causing them. So the problem here is like until we have a better way of diagnosing, people will go through this journey of getting their IBS diagnosed first and then when their symptoms don't improve or they start to notice periods getting worse over the years, then they may go and um, have it diagnosed. So when we actually then look at how to manage the two, I don't look at them as separate things. How I see it is that if someone has endo, they their endo is driving the irritable bowel symptoms and so we kind of I mean essentially I just treat it like I treat all of it together I don't sort of say I'm just going to focus only on your IBS and then we'll have to focus on your endo another day it's kind of all at one in the same thing the great thing though is that we have a lot more data on IBS we have a lot more research and that means that we can pick up a lot of what we understand about IBS and actually use it to help manage endo, which is super exciting. Endo has unfortunately been a really historically poorly um, researched health condition. And so we are often trying to pull pieces of data and, and clues together to to best manage it. Um, But yeah, I mean, we just keep going because there's people with endo, there's 10% of women who have endo. So uh, we need to do something about it. We can't just wait for data to turn up.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. And it can be so frustrating for everyone when there's, is that lack of research and no answers, mm-hmm. even with IBS. I remember when I got my IBS diagnosis and my mum was so ecstatic on the phone because she, uh, like next to me, cause she was like, Oh my God, there's nothing like terribly wrong with you. And then I was upset because I was like I just wanted an answer because there's nothing Mm -hmm. more frustrating than not knowing and I was like okay cool do I just get to live my life like this now because there's no like fix which I guess is like what I was like looking for especially when you have like all the tests and the scopes and everything
1: whether you have a diagnosis or not your symptoms are what uh, your symptoms are real you know like and I, I sometimes I think that we put so much uh, wait on getting a diagnosis to validate how we feel and what we experience. That I think we forget that it is enough for you to say to me that you struggle with period pain, you have um, bloating, you have chronic diarrhea, and you're miserable. Like I, w- you know, I don't need you to tell me you have endo for me to go right. Um, this is what we're going to do to make that better. And I I guess that um, maybe other practitioners are different, but for me personally, I don't think that you need to have a diagnosis to validate your experience. If you tell me this is what you experienced, I believe you and, and I'll help with that. If that matches similar to what endo sounds like, we can assume you possibly have undiagnosed endo, but, you know, if you don't want the surgery, you don't want to do all those things, we don't have to go down that path.
0: Yeah, and that would be amazing for people to hear too knowing that, you know, their their symptoms are valid, they can seek help for it and they're, you know, not overreacting and they do deserve to feel better because I know a lot of people are just like, Oh, it's just it's just what I have to deal with and they just push on through and like it's not a way to live. It's not like it's just not fun for anyone.
1: No, no, no one like in your circle wants to see you suffer either. So, but I do, I think our society probably does teach us to soldier on, work hard, don't show weakness, um, be an overachiever. You know, and I think that all of these pressures that we feel often we sort of um, don't listen to our bodies as well as we should. Um, yeah, yeah I, I hope that anybody who's listening and has any of those symptoms knows that you, like if you hit a thousand different barriers with the doctors not progressing you to surgery or progressing you further, it's, you don't have to wait. Like you can go and start seeing people like me or a pelvic physiotherapist or a psychologist, the people that you need in your team who manage endometriosis like symptoms. Um, You can start getting on top of your symptoms now and then, you know, be waiting on the waiting list for surgery if that's what you still want to do. But you can work on it now. You don't have to get diagnosed and then start taking action about that.
0: Yeah, definitely. For anyone who has uncomfortable symptoms during their period, Mm. such as like bloating, pain, all those things, do you have any tips for our diets like during that time? And should we be changing our diets when it's our period?
1: yeah it's a a really interesting question again because uh it's quite popular at the moment the whole like um what do they
0: call it it's like the femme I mean like there's what do you call it like femme like the femme tracking and like tracking our cycles and yeah the natural approaches to like our fertility and stuff yeah
1: and it's one thing like to track your cycle and I and I'm a I personally track my own and I and I really believe in the empowerment that you can get from that. And then there's a lot of sort of stuff around on the internet about like doing certain things in the four phases of your cycle. So, mm-hmm. you know, in this cycle, don't exercise, only do yoga and definitely don't eat any of these things and only eat these things. And, you know, again, like I, I think people just love the whole, like they're like a plan like that and just want to follow But, you know, everyone is really, really different and some people don't experience any changes whatsoever at that time of the month. And so they don't need to suddenly stop going to the gym if they don't feel fatigued at that time of the month. But you can probably see, you know, there's a bit of a characteristic change that happens for most people around that time of the month. So endo or not endo, as you're reaching your period, you're... Uh, temperature actually is going up. And so that it's a, it's only small, but it's enough that it will actually make you hungrier. It increases your metabolic rate. And this is why so many people get cravings around that time of the month. They're looking for chocolate and ice cream and stuff like that. Um, and that also coincides with the drop in the mood. So your estrogen and progesterone drop when you have your period. So that can make you feel more moody. And then if you just literally take moodiness and you combine that with hunger, you just get sort of binge eating tendencies. (laughs) So my best advice is that, first of all, knowing that can sometimes be really helpful because, again, you know, we can sometimes feel lost. Like, why do I feel like this? I just feel really crapped today. And I don't know why. If you do track your cycle and go, Oh, actually, I know that it's typical around this time of the month that I might feel hungrier. So I should be packing more snacks than usual, or I should have a little bit of a bigger breakfast and a bigger lunch and a bigger dinner. Um, Probably the best tip, honestly, because almost everybody does this. No one eats between lunch and dinner. And the gap is huge like you think about your breakfast maybe it's 7 a.m and then you know your lunch is maybe around 12 and then 12 down to 7 p.m is seven hours like it's really really significant so when your blood sugar levels drop in the afternoon you become hangry and then you want to grab whatever you can so especially especially when it's during your period this is the most important time to make sure you definitely have an afternoon snack and make it a really decent one like put in you know uh like one of some of my favorites if you want chocolate like what if you did like banana yogurt and then you sprinkled some chocolate buttons in there and then you just you get a little chocolate hit but you're still also getting fruit and you're still getting a really nice like you know probiotic rich yogurt uh what if you even you know, my I'm a real savory person. I, I love doing like uh like cheese, crackers, olives, and pickles. And and that just makes me feel like I'm having like a little grazing board mid-afternoon. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it would.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So afternoon snack is really, really key. Um the second one I want to talk about is that when you when you are having your period, so the contractions that your uterus is experiencing to actually remove the menstrual flow is caused by something called prostaglandins. So they're like little inflammatory chemicals, if you like, that our body makes to contract the smooth muscle around the uterus. And then we have our period. So what that causes, that's why we get pain. That's why we experience pain down there because it's like literally like shaking around. So the best thing you can do to try and uh, reduce your period pain is to focus on a more, anti-inflammatory pattern of eating so unfortunately um, chocolate ice cream and chips are like the worst things to eat around your period because they contain saturated fats that are very inflammatory so I did, I mean, I'm not going to tell you to not have them. Like you could honestly go and, go and get like the little like, you know, individual packet sized kind of versions of these and then you can manage your portions. <laughs> um, but ultimately, it's better if you can have more vegetables, more fruit around this time, make a big stir fry. Um I don't know. Like if you've got like a favorite dish that you can just load up with extra vegetables, if you love spaghetti bolognese, like great heaps, you know, get some zucchini in there and some carrot and mushrooms and capsicum. You can go nuts, put legumes, put corn Mm -hmm. um, and really, really bulk it up. That will make a big difference. Um, And there's a couple of key nutrients as well that can help, like magnesium helps with cramping and spasming. Um, zinc helps with reducing inflammation. Uh, what's another one? Omega-3 uh, reduces the prostaglandins. And iron is something that we're losing at that time of the month as well. So focusing on foods that have are a good source of those nutrients, things like salmon, um, like uh, prawns or oysters are really high in zinc. Um, whole grains and legumes contain a lot of magnesium same with your nuts and your seeds even like leafy greens as well i mean i feel like every like natural food contains some of these but these are definitely like the best sources of those nutrients um and also just the last one is that caffeine uh you might be more sensitive to caffeine around your period and a lot of people just look at me like chrissy i'm not giving up my coffee (laughs) I'm like, oh, that's okay. You don't have to give up your coffee. Either have less of it or switch to like have a normal one and then switch to decaf and start to oh, reduce yeah. your caffeine, especially if you have gut issues. I mean, caffeine is just a bit of a nightmare for anyone with gut mm. issues because it's a gut irritant, um, but it, it, it can uh, increase your perception of pain around your period. And so doing a little switch even to more herbal teas will reduce inflammation it keeps you more hydrated which is just a win-win because a lot of people get fluid retention around their period as well and so having fluid coming in um is going to help with like flushing out the extra fluid too
0: yeah oh that's awesome yeah. to know there's so many good tips in there um, <laughs> i know myself i was getting my period today and i've got the raspberry bullet Sex me and i had my second coffee today and i normally don't instantly felt so much more anxious <laughs> Yeah. And I'm like, I know I shouldn't be doing this.
1: <laughs> it's funny how, like, isn't it? As humans, like, we know what we should do a lot of the time, and if we really listen to our intuition, we we do know what's best for us and how to look after ourselves and all of that. But we're just so much more complicated than that. And mm-hmm. like, we're you know, there's the whole emotional component of food as well. You know, it's one thing to focus on nutrition. But there's so much psychology involved in our food choices, you know, when we're not feeling our best or when we're, you know, looking for a pick me up and we lack energy, we tend to gravitate to the foods that probably won't actually help us really. They might give us a a short buzz, (laughs) but they're actually going to set us back. Mm -hmm. We still kind of go there because, I mean, our brains are so wired that sugar is, is, you know, I don't know. It gets you that little, that little high again yeah, <laughs> for a literally, minute. <laughs> literally,
0: And then you have such a come
1: down. <laughs> yeah. I talk to my clients a lot about those cycles around like uh, emotional eating and trying to become more of a mindful eater and learning to become intuitive with what your body needs, which is something that needs to, you know, something you can, you have to practice for a very long time, but just starting to implement those strategies means that, the knowledge that I give people about nutrition can be more easily implemented because we, again, we know about nutrition, a lot of us do, but it's the implementation part that we get really stuck with and that's where a lot of um, the psychology components around food can be really helpful for people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine it would be. Now mm. I would love to know, you're the first person I'm asking since the brain change, so I'm super excited. <laughs> what is something that is orgasmic to you?
1: <laughs> I love this question that's amazing I mean when I think of orgasmic I think of things that like absolutely light me up like you know when you just like your whole face just erupts in a smile like you get the biggest like joy kick yeah. um on maybe this sounds corny but I actually reckon my when I see the, like so my dog's very has a really like strong facial expressions <laughs> and when she realizes that we're going on a walk mm-hmm. <laughs> her reaction is just the best
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that <laughs> and I
1: almost just can't even wait like I finish I finish up some work and you know close down like my emails and whatever and I go out there and I literally look around the corner and I can see her like under her like little bed covers mm-hmm. and I'll literally just go walk <laughs> <laughs> and she's just like Bam! Like she just like jumps out and just goes absolutely mental. It. It's the best, it's the best time of my day. then tell my husband.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. Well, it's actually International Dog Day today, so it's perfect. <laughs> That's the best. Oh, I'm stoked. <laughs> Is there we any?
1: Stopping- oh, sorry. You I was go. gonna say. I was going to say, weird to say, like, what what makes – what's orgasmic? And then I think about my dog. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's fine. We'll, we'll understand. <laughs> is there anything else that you think is important to touch on? Oh, gosh. Like, there's so many – like, you know,
1: I love talking about nutrition. I love mm. talking about endo. And I feel like it's such an under-talked-about topic If anything, honestly, like this, there's not, we can't really get through everything in a podcast. If anyone wants to learn more about nutrition and how it impacts endometriosis and specifically around like the framework that I use and the steps that I take people through, I have only last month just created a a masterclass. And so in the masterclass, I walk people through um, tips like m- myth busting, um, like oh, some of the biggest mistakes people are making. And then, and then we're going to flip that on, on its head and look at how I would specifically address that. So there's heaps and heaps of value in there. If people want to go really deep into this topic, um, I think now if I can remember the address correctly, slash registration. And then if you, if you go to my Instagram, it'll be like the little link in the bio section is that, is that web address. So you can always just go there. Um, my Instagram is at endometriosis.dietitian.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been amazing to chat to you today. And I've actually learned a fair bit, especially the cheese. I'm like, that's the best (laughs) I've learned today. (laughs) So thank you so much. Treat yourself to a cheese platter. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) As always, Shaggers, please reach out with any comments, questions or stories that you have either through my Instagram that's Orgasmic, or my email Emily Duncan at That's Orgasmic.com. Please subscribe on whatever platform you like to use to listen to these podcasts and leave a review as I would love to know what you're thinking. So I will see you next week, Shaggers. <laughs>